And this is the this is the season, this uh, Christmas time, the season for for uh, making merry, or actually uh, making merit is the uh, better way to use it. Uh, the reflections on the bringing around uh, good fortune, well-being for oneself and for others in the future. So tonight I'd like to talk a bit about this and specifically in relationship to to meditation which is said to be the highest kind of of merit-making activity. Just as, um, say, with with make, making merry or enjoying oneself, it can have a very strong, pleasant feeling in the present moment, but then the next day when you have a hangover or you, you, you don't have such a pleasant feeling, it doesn't always give uh, rise to pleasant feelings in the future. And uh, so with, but when you perform meritorious actions, then you can have goodness in the present or things that are relatively okay or even slightly neutral, the feeling of it, the excitement or the rapturousness of it, but in the future one has more well-being. And the quality of, of the, the results of, of merit-making are an increasing sense of, of what's called viveka or a kind of detachment or um, independence or, or liberation, freedom, lightness, so that uh, when one, any kind of merit generally means you, you're free from, free from hatred or aversion or guilt or remorse or bitterness or resentment. One is free from these things. One is has a sense of independence. One is able to, to, not be uh, craving or frantic or caught up with things. One one is able to put up with or endure painful things. Um, this is, a, say, the quality of, of, of merit. As this, it, it deepens the spirit of, of viveka, of, a, of independence, of freedom. Being born as a human being is a relatively meritorious experience. You know, unlike like animals, uh, one, one doesn't have to live a life continually on the run, like most creatures are continually on the run from other creatures about to eat them. You're not in a desperate situation regarding food. One has some way of, of not being just blindly caught up with instinct. Uh, animals generally have got just powerful instincts they can't do much about. Uh, if you see the, the, the cat when it sees a mouse, it, it has to go and chase it, kill it can't do much about it. Um, our animals do such things as just even throw themselves off cliffs. Uh, these lemmings, these Norwegian, these Norwegian creatures that, that have these kind of mass instinctive throwing themselves off cliffs every few years. And it doesn't do them a lot of good, but they can't, they can't help it. Whereas as a human being, one is some some ability to be independent from just drives and instincts and the forces of nature. Being born in these countries is, is very meritorious, and one is fairly free from hunger and need and want. 
someone has that ability to spend time doing doing other things you don't have to continually kind of stave off the forces of death and decay or violence it's not you're in a war so these are just ways in which one can consider and take stock of the the meritoriousness the blessings of one's one's life which people don't often do as well as it's a very good thing to to bear in mind and take take stock of because with uh, the the enemy or the problem with with uh, the thing that counteracts this liberation experience of viveka is is ignorance is not really noticing not really being unaware being stuck being completely occluding the goodness of one's life and this generally means that what happens is we <coughs> we form a we get stuck onto the level of particular just immediate feeling um, sense experience um, desire drives intentions volitional qualities we get stuck into what are called the the five kanda is body and then and then four four mental aspects feeling um, thing, things that are felt um, happy pleasant feeling unpleasant feeling and the search for that um, perceptions and assumptions things in our, our ways of seeing things our perceptions the, uh, the the very elements that come into consciousness whatever is seen heard or touched or tasted or thought kind of is compulsive and compels us and drags us around and and and, and our, inte- our, our intention our volitional quality uh, is always caught up with creating more pleasant feeling um, acting in our own ways acting according to our own perceptions and ideas and always acting in terms of just what's immediately breaking into the into the into the sense consciousness whatever seen or heard or touched now when we're completely caught up with that lot then even as a human being life is is uh, it can be it can be exciting it can even be, a, be pleasant but it's it's not free it's not it's not a liberating or a buoyant at ease feeling so human beings when they're strongly under the influence of of ignorance have none of this lightness they have no no independence they feel something and they act upon it they have a thought and they act upon it they perceive something they recognize something and they can't see any other way they're totally intolerant and so they argue or fight so that the the intention or the activating principle is bound up with the perception or it's bound up with a feeling or it's bound up with what just is seen or heard or touched or tasted or thought the immediate thing just we get this immediate reaction now we can't be apart from feeling perceptions and and thoughts and so on and and directives in our mind but um the spirit of viveka is that there's there's a deepening quality of awareness of all that so instead of just being this compulsive glued to the immediate kind of reactions there's there's a kind of space so that something is felt and the feeling is 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 received it feels this way and gradually oh, this 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 is what meditation does 
is why meditation is, is in some way a kind of concentrated form of merit making because it actually with, in, very, in very undramatic ways or seemingly undramatic ways when one is sitting still or just breathing in and out you're, you're actually directly prizing away or liberating the, the, the attachment to, the fire, to these, these forces to feeling, to perceptions, to, to intentions, and to whatever comes into sense consciousness. You, you, something comes in, you hear something, it feels unpleasant, and then, you know, but before you dismiss it, you, oh, it's like that. You let it come and you let it go. So that you actually free yourself from, it, from this compulsive activity. You have a thought, a thought comes into the mind, a, an exciting thought, a thought that creates a powerful stimulation and that, that comes into consciousness, it feels powerfully exciting, it's got a pleasant feeling to it but awareness, this, this quality of uh, non-attachment then recognises that, and we're just actually lingering or, or creating a little more space around the, who we are so this is the highest, this is a very direct way of 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 making merit, of 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 increasing, of, of enriching, of deepening the quality of this of this non non attachment. And of course, there are other ways one can do this. Any act of generosity, any act of kindness, any act of patience, any act of compassion, any act of forbearance is. You can see it in the same light. When you're patient, there's something unpleasant. And instead of reacting to it, you, you create, you let some space exist around it. When you're when you're being generous, you you're actually increasing or, or your your the space within which you live. Like if you're totally mean and stingy, then your your world is just bound up with yourself. Whenever there's generosity, then your world increases. You include other people in it. They become important to you. They become dear to you. Your sense of, of uh, your sense of personal space, if you like, increases to include other beings. And when there's loving kindness, this is the same kind of thing. So what's happening is, is it that with such activities, there's a kind, there's an increasing independence from just the immediate um, personalized and and uh, reactive. Um, feelings, consciousness, and so on. Um, another way one can see liberation is that it's, it's about more selflessness. So uh, when, we're, when, we're, when there's a strong self-consciousness or greed or selfishness or self-interest, then there's not much space around the perceptions that we have. We see things our way. And it's like that. There's not much space, there's not much liberation from the particular mental feelings we have. They're, they're taken very intensely and very seriously. And we can see um, self, selfishness not just as purely greedy, or being, but also being self-conscious, self-important, paranoid, embarrassed, fearful. These are the kind of aspects of selfishness that also 
uh, come from are are connected to a, a compulsive, immediate reaction to and holding on to a feeling, a perception, an idea. And when it's held on to, it becomes me. It becomes it solidifies into a person. So making merit always liberates and it always deflates or or lightens this sense of self. It either it, it either it makes it much less uh, um, intense and and small and kind of congested, contracted. It it it, it enlarges the heart, if you like. And the, <clears throat> but because really the the problem is is a, a psychological or mental or emotional one, then the more the more directly we we deal with mental, psychological, emotional, have you like to put it, those experiences, that's where the grasping, the attachment, the self selfishness is. The more more directly we deal with those then the more immediately and um, profitably one, one, one uh, creates merit, one, uh, the spirit of non-attachment, of independence, of freedom comes in. The Buddha said even if you, you gave alms and, and uh, gifts to an, to, to an entire Sangha with a Buddha at the head of it, said just it would to, to practice mindfulness of breathing for one second would be more meritorious than that I think it's a kind of dramatic example, I don't know if you actually calibrate it that way, but it gives you it's a, it's a, a very good example because most people see the only kind of good fortune can come from doing something that the blessedness of life arises from how we act so we tend to see ourselves just in trying to act in in ways that are helpful or kind or whatever, which is certainly beneficial, but then the importance of of meditation is not really valued. So sometimes, like my 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 rel- my brother, my relative, my only relative left, <laughs> you can see that the goodness of good activity. But what's the point of just sitting around doing nothing? What's the point of just sitting there? for hours on end, breathing in and out. I mean, shouldn't you be out teaching people, helping people, spreading the word, spreading the light, giving the good news, how to deal with this, you know, shouldn't you be more active? And uh, so, so, because if we're looking at it very practically, what does bring goodness into the world and he's, he's sitting around maybe doing doing a two month retreat like the Sangha just about to undertake what good does that do anybody you know it's just like nuts to you I'm looking after myself is meditation a totally selfish activity where we just well this is uh, until one has really understood the the way that uh, liberation and the five khanda operate then it doesn't make a lot of sense. But we begin to see that, that actually a, a retreat or a period of meditation, even half an hour of meditation or, or a, a daily practice, is kind of like a close-up, just 
direct, instead of working through the external means of the world and activities, which is of course a beneficial place, you're actually getting right up to the root of all activity and all reaction and all responsiveness and all awareness and all sensitivity and you're dealing very directly with that in itself so that you know just doing this regularly or for a sustained period of time actually makes it possible to to create uh, greater effects in the world as for example the case of the Buddha himself who, who could have been a great king and created great laws and and uh, looked after his people and so on and so on and so on which would have been highly beneficial for them or he could have just given all up and watched his breath which has been highly beneficial for the rest of us for, for, mil- for thousands of years now so often the truly meritorious actions don't have the immediate hit You know, they don't have the immediate result, they have a more long sustained result. So you have to be quite careful of that because the 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 belief or the, the attachment to perceptions and thoughts and ideas and feelings means that we because of that we tend to want results right now. That means I want a good feeling. I want an inspiring idea, I want to have a pleasant mental state now, I want to see results now. And this means we're not actually recognising the, the, the quality of freedom. We're just looking at feeling, or what thoughts arise, or what, act, what activities occur in the world. And we're seeing, you know, sitting down here watching the breath, for example, is not doing anything about world problems, or, or this or that or the other. Because it's not immediately doing anything about it. And even in terms of your own practice, you can sometimes wonder whether washing the breath is doing you any good. And you still have these, you know, you say, well, I don't feel great. I mean, I don't, you know, I, don't, I get a bit depressed sometimes. I'm a bit discouraged because I can't concentrate. If I didn't meditate, I wouldn't be discouraged about my, my inability to do it. Only one way of making myself feel better as it is whenever I practice Anapanasati, I get depressed because my mind wanders. So what's the point of doing that? Just to be stuck with another depressing mind state? Or because my, 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 my body hurts when I practice meditation? I get pl- unpleasant mental feelings, I get unpleasant perceptions, I get unpleasant physical feelings. Things that come into consciousness are painful thoughts and, 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 and memories and kind of disordered moods, things that aren't clear. But I feel much better when I'm out working, doing this, doing that, doing the other, talking to people, and I feel much more in good spirits. This is when we're just, we're just compulsively identified with the immediate feelings that arise, the immediate level of thoughts that arise. And certainly meditation is a, is a great uh, test of one's faith and perseverance because it, it's, it does often mean that you, you, you have to be with unpleasant feelings, uninspiring perceptions, confusing ac- mental activities 
and 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 not as particularly great feel uh, things coming in through your through your mind or through your body. But then over time, you begin to see there's a kind of an increasing sense of selflessness of 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 genuine um, care, concern, compassion which often is engendered by one's own difficulties actually you begin to see that you need to be softer with yourself or less or, or gentler or less angry or less bitter or more forgiving so there's even a, a merit made out of even bad meditation is meritorious because it does tend to point out the chaos of one's compulsive reactions to unpleasant mental states and if we we can think well I can't do much about unpleasant physical feelings or unpleasant mental states, but I can stop reacting to them. But that's enormously meritorious. Because then, of course, we if we do that, then our activities in the world, where often we can be confronted with unpleasant people and, and awkward situations, we, bring, we can bring forth a good response once we've learnt to, to even meditate badly. <laughs> you know, conventionally speaking, when we talk about it makes you wonder really what, what do you mean by good meditation or bad meditation and actually generally people mean they have good feelings good perceptions happy thoughts or the, the kind of states they want they don't have the kind of states they don't like they have the kind of states that make you feel positive but actually the the the, the one doesn't have to meditate, you know, you don't have to meditate badly. <laughs> I mean, it's not, you don't have to just deal with wretched mind states. You can, with a, a teaching like the Buddha's teaching on mindfulness of breathing, if you really use it skillfully and carefully and don't get compulsive and frantic about it and don't make a personal issue out of it. In other words, if you practice it in the spirit of viveka, of freedom, of liberation, of of, of a kind of well, let's give it a try, rather than making a personality uh, claim out of it, how good you are at it, or or what's it going to do for you. But if you really do practice it in a kind of free way, to just see how the mind works and how you can, how the body works, then you do bring, you do find yourself experiencing uh, pleasant mind states and pleasant perceptions and pleasant feelings. You, you experience kusala or skillfulness, goodness. So that a lot, like, you should always, in doing a formal practice of meditation, like, really see how, just by being with the body, just by, by bringing around bodily uprightness, bodily clarity, just just dropping all the, the ideas and the notions and just making the the bringing a kind of well-being into the body, breathing fully, breathing clearly, breathing deeply into the body, does bring around bodily well-being. Now you may not think, you know, right now that bodily well-being, like the bodily well-being you get from breathing in and out, is that much of a big thing, when you've got debts to pay and things to have done by tomorrow and problems with your relationship with so-and-so and wondering what you should do in the future what's the you know so but then it does require concentration 
And concentration, you can see, is just simplicity rather than a massive effort of the will. Being totally simple, being able to simplify yourself down to right now there's a breath. You know, whether you're, whether you're hated or loved, respected or famous or whatever, you've, still, you can still receive a breath. And just keeping it that, that direct and that simple. And breathing in and breathing out as it, it brightens and enhances the bodily feeling. And the mind, when you attune to that, then your mind responds or picks up that exact quality. And this is, you can use this in two ways. Of course, uh, the first way is, is the normal conventional way, which we tend to do at first, which is that from our unenlightened viewpoint, then our whole life is really based about getting hold of something pleasant and staying with it. Um, that's all we know. So to be in a pleasant relationship, a good job, good health, and so on, this is what we want. To be a, have a bright mind, this is what we want. Because it's rather limited, because actually the, the way things are is one can't, can't have those forever. They're very, they're very temporary experiences. But that's, it's, it's, though you can say that, it doesn't really make much difference. That's what one's going to go for. We don't, we don't, until something else has arisen in us, you're always going to go for what feels good, what feels pleasant, no matter what anybody else says, or what even you say yourself. <laughs> your intention, your inclination is always towards that which is, you know, going to bring you into contact with something that's agreeable. You can't help it. It's, that's, that's what it's like. So the, the the first way that one meditates is and why why you actually taking it into account you you try to choose a meditation object or a way of meditating an attitude towards it that will bring around uh, some well being good fortune sometimes that aspect of the practice is not recollected. Um, <clears throat> ways in which one can do this is to sometimes recollections there are different recollections you bear in mind this morning I was talking a little about the recollection of death which most people don't see as a, a terribly gladdening, inspiring recollection but when you recollection of death actually makes you appreciate every moment you, when you set, when you put your standard, when you bring your standards right down, like everything else is up from there. <laughs> so that, like the recollection of death means that you tend to take each moment as it comes. You're not because if you're really considering that maybe this day is your last, it tends to wipe out the pettiness or the grudges or the, the silly, trivial, the way one gets hung up about minutiae and behaves in petty, mean ways towards other people, or is endlessly fretting over little trivial things in life. The perception, the recollection of, of death actually brightens and broadens your, your life.
it gives you a certain independence because when you recollect that all that you know that you can ever do is in one way is, is die there's nothing to be frightened of if you're prepared to live with that that this day could be the last you think well is there any way you can stop it can you can you not die is that possible once you realize it's impossible not to die physically and that it's impossible to say today I will not die I'm not going to let it happen to me then in some ways we're saying that every day every moment in fact is our last we're living in that way we're living with that definite possibility bearing that in mind because that's actually that's true that's a skillful recollection because it, it means that rather than think well you know tomorrow I'll do it uh, um, I'll, I'll meditate tomorrow or maybe when I get this done but how would you like to die do you want to die hanging on to something things unfinished got to get this done by tomorrow I don't like the way she does this I can't stand him. Do you want to die like that? Or do you want to actually say, whatever, I forgive it, forget it, it doesn't matter. The thing that really counts is just the, one's own goodness, one's own honour, one's own presence in the present moment. This is a skillful recollection. It bring, it, actually, it brings one joy, if you use it wisely, and all of us, are going to die so if we really use that all of us also have a possibility for joy one can also recollect of course uh, the other like the skillful actions people sometimes don't consider why fully enough just the ability to do good is a great blessing. We can often act e- even in communities in very habitual, automatic ways. We just do this because you're told, and it's time to do that, so we do this and this, and without seeing the possibility of doing something, looking at a situation and thinking, how can I actually bring someone else happiness through that? How can I bring around somebody else's work? How can I make life easier for somebody else? However tiny that is, just to bring that recollection, the recollection on kindness, into the mind. These are these are very uh, skillful recollections, and we can also bring them to bear in terms of our meditation. Those in, in some ways, those are, those are themes of recollection. You can, make, you can call them meditations, if you like. They're themes of recollection. But you can also use them as, as recollections that back up a practice such as mindfulness of breathing. They, they help to clear the mind and put it in the right frame. And they also can be born in mind, actually, while you're practicing. They, 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 can, they can affect the way your mental attitude, which in the later stages of mindfulness and breathing become very, very significant. So first of all, um, 
we're choosing a skillful meditation object, but then we recognize that the, the nature of the object in some way is hinges upon the nature of the subject. Mindfulness of breathing can be a totally boring, pointless, frantic or conceited experience. If you know it's the same in-breath and out-breath, even the same focusing on it, but if the if the mental intention is bored, flaccid, unwilling, or if it's greedy and arrogant, and I'm going to get this and now I'm that, then even though uh, one's, one, the object of the meditation is the same, the, the quality of the subject means that at a certain stage of the, of the mindfulness of breathing, it goes wrong, it goes off. You can certainly calm your body with a forceful mind, you can certainly calm your body with a selfish intention that you're going to get what you can out of this or just the, the looking for, for that particular quality of happiness. You can even get into absorptions in that way. But it never, it always, it, it can't go towards the final uh, practices of meditation which are the highest kinds of merit, the highest kinds of freedom which are about cessation of the self-instinct an abandonment, relinquishment, the complete letting go, the no longer owning, the complete freedom. You can't, you can't do that. The Buddha himself, as a, as a young practitioner, perfected all these absorptions and used to run up and down them the way that you would fly upstairs. But he didn't realize anything that he felt was truly, truly beyond you're still left with this self-instinct going from this to that to this to that to this to that to this to that. Some kind of goodness, um, some advantages and, and very fortunate results and yet stuck at one point. He said that this kind of meditations lead to a very fortunate rebirth. Fortunate in the immediate context you get born into these formless realms, but then unfortunate in the long run because being born into it, you just, in a way, you you have no ability of re- reflecting on it. So you you stay in it for as long as it goes on, and then you, and then you more or less pass away in it, and you you have to start again. It's like snakes and ladders. You can get right up to, you know, number forty-nine on the board of fifty. And then there's a big snake and you go all the way down it. So you get down to one again. And this is what the, the cycle of rebirth is about. Snakes and ladders. So there are, there are in, in cultivating meditation, then there are two, two themes of it. One is to, uh, at first they're, they are kind of simultaneous in the one calms and heightens and, and works upon the object of it, so that you, you, did, you come to your breath, you focus on your body, you get more and more skillful at doing that, and then you rest, or your mind absorbs into the particular feeling, or Vedana, that arises from that. And as in the, as in the way of an unliberated mind, then that particular feeling stimulates the activity, the intention, which is to have more of it or to refine it further. So that you, you go into the meditation 
looking for a feeling, you find a feeling, you refine a feeling, the, fi- the feeling gets finer and more subtly buoyant and pleasant, and your intention sticks at that level. You, in fact, keep the whole system of, the, of these khandhas going, but you, you move it up, to another, an, up a new notch. You get bodily pleasant, and then, in fact, the sensation of the body more or less drops away, and you're left just with mind states to, to a refined and, and subtle degree. Or you can cultivate the same practices, but instead of, and you get the same kind of feeling, or, but instead of letting your, your, in, your intention, your directive, be fastened to the feeling, in other words, to create more of that feeling or to refine that feeling, you begin to look, inquire, investigate into the way that the mind is conditioned by feeling, what it is that is moved by feeling, and you begin to create a kind of space between the feeling and the reaction, the intention. So you look at pleasant pleasant feeling, it's like this, but or unpleasant feeling. And the just by regarding it more clearly, then without doing anything else apart from truly regarding it, coolly regarding it, that quality of onlooking observation, which is the spirit of liberation, of freedom, of viveka, replaces the compulsion of attachment. So you don't have to get rid of attachment, you just look more closely at it, and then looking closely, that state of mind replaces what before was a kind of blurred reflex. So you learn to respond rather than react. And this is the way of insight. And you can practice uh, anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing like this. You can, you can go to stabilizing the body, absorb, uh, refining the mind, <clears throat> and then looking into the mind. Knowing, knowing the mind, which means you know the feeling, you know the mood, you're aware of the perceptions, you're aware of the directions, the, the intentions, you're aware of the mental states, and you're more emphasizing being fully aware of them. And the advantage of this kind of training, as you go backwards and forwards, as you sweep in and out of meditation and back into daily life, is that something stays there, this, this spirit of inquiry, of viveka, of liberation, stays with you from the inner workings of refined meditation to the outer workings of the unrefined daily life experience. That's its big payoff, if you like, is once you've seen the, the, as you've got more closely into the, the reactions and moods of your heart as you meditate, you see them close up, then you have the same kind of view and vision in the daily life, and the two will go together. So that often you, you find that you, your insights, or a lot of your groundwork can be done through the practice, the formal practice, but then a lot of insights will arise outside of it, outside of the formal practice. 
but not not without it. You know, you have a you have a the the quality of the of the good fortune or the benefit is that you get this delayed result. You don't get an immediate result. Your meditation may not seem to be producing you any kind of brilliant conclusions. And yet, just by developing that, just by developing that that knowingness, that that attentiveness, then that stays with you, and, and you find that you, in the long run, you get kind of insights and reflections and notions, and anger dies away in you, and fear dies away, and you find something you before you were greedy for, you don't feel greedy about, and somewhere where you panicked and were frightened and defensive doesn't happen anymore, but you don't know why, you know, because you've actually undercut it in the meditation without even realising it. Because in the meditation you're so often dealing just with the mechanics of the mind rather than with particular circumstances. So you're knowing the mind and in uh, cultivating insight practice then these, these... Fortunate recollections and and good karma, good uh, meritorious actions then begin to play an important part in the way that one is able to free oneself from these khandhas, from feeling and perception. Now, if you if you've been very forceful or or greedy personally, act in those ways, then even though you may be able to get very concentrated and get quite high, you don't get free of it. You, 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 the freedom bit isn't there. You can just move from one feeling to the next. And there are yogis in the time of the Buddha who, who did that. Some quite evil men could, could attain strong states of absorption. But they couldn't get free of them. They didn't even think in those terms. Often in the practice of insight, you'll find that you, you, first of all, you've calmed down a bit as you sit and meditate, and you pick up your meditation object, and you work with that for a while, and you get quite calm, and then suddenly acti- mental activity will start up. And you went to a point of, being quite calm and still, and then various things will come up. And sometimes one can feel, oh, it's gone, my mind is wandering. No dear. Wandering mind. Wandering mind, outside of, this is why you have to be better to talk about mind cultivation than meditation. Because meditation is so associated with a kind of stillness and silence and fixity and stability that it often it, it cramps what, what the true cultivation could be about. A wandering mind, if we're not meditating, we call it intelligence. We see it as an asset, a mind that can turn around something. So you see something that reminds you of this, you think about that, you see it another way, your mind acts, it, it, it kind of skips around an object. This is what we call being intelligent. Now, if your mind is not intelligent, you just see something and nothing happens, no reaction, you just, okay, you go on automatic. 
But when we meditate, we feel that a mind that, that, that actually moves around, we call it wandering and a nuisance. And just that, because the, the idea is so loaded in terms of you must concentrate, you must fixate, that you feel negative about the mind moving, so that very negative mood, disappointed mood, means that when you, as your mind moves, it, it, ta- it carries that negativity with it, and you find you get into fantasies and doubt and restlessness, and you don't like that, so you feel grumpy about it, and the mood and the feeling of the, of the mind continues to stimulate. So the wandering is done in unproductive ways, in fantasy or daydream or brooding or, or whatever. But actually, insight involves this kind of wandering, or not a wandering, but a movement, an ability to, to actually make that, that movement skillful. To, so we deliberately, or we train our mind, to, to our, our intelligence to turn around something, rather than just profitless thoughts, sustained and skillful thought. What is this? What's it about? What are my feelings about it? And we don't have to keep a continual monologue going, but just encouraging the mind to, 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 to bring up one thought and stay with it. What is this? Why does that hurt? What's the nature of this? What is that affecting? What is the me that it's affecting? When I say this is a nuisance to me, what, what is the me that it's a nuisance to? It's often a nuisance to my hope, or my assumption, or my perception, or my feeling. And we begin to reflect and realize that these things are not ourselves, they're not our mind. These things condition the mind into the sense of self. We begin to, to see what that is for all of us. It's changing, isn't it? But it's, we can say that in broad terms, it's, it's, the, it's often called karma, but actually it's generally the vipaka, which means the resultant karma. What has happened to us, what we have done, the way we have lived our life, the acts we have committed have built in certain kind of reactions and assumptions and positions and attitudes that have that a whole reference is based themselves upon. And that's what gets hurt, that's what gets excited, that's what gets confused, that's what that's what it is. It's not self, it's vipaka kamma. And when you focus, you begin to, in the subsequent stages of anapanasati, then you're focusing on that which can know the vipaka, or or the ability to contemplate and look at what has happened to you. Even if that's just a, a, a sound one second ago, or a twinge in your knee, or most often a thought in your mind. You see it as that as a result. And the feeling that comes from it is, is called Vedana, and it's the resultant feeling. Now, a lot, lot of our practice is actually the feeling, the resultant feeling, the Vedana, is not pleasant, because lots of unresolved, the things that are the vipaka is generally 
a certain amount of it is unfortunate. That's why it's stuck there. It's not liberated, so it's still around. It's still going on, it's still continuing to, to create you and condition you. It's a trap, and you become more conscious of the delineations of the trap of your conditioning. So it's not pleasant, it's not, it may be even quite fun or exciting, but it's not the pleasantness of liberation, it's not the kind of free light feeling. It becomes obsessive and you get fed up with it. I remember my first year of meditation, I used to just hear music all the time whenever I sat. Because for the previous two or three years, that's what I did, I just listened to music all day. Well, as often as I could. My, my life tended to revolve around sticking my head up against the loudspeaker in various states of consciousness. <laughs> and so therefore, which was great fun, I mean, it's quite deliberately. But then once you... <laughs> the way Parker was, that, that it was a sit and meditate, and we go through that again. And that again, and that again, and you wish somebody would just turn it off. But they couldn't turn it off because, because of the Vipaka. It's like that, the result is that way. After a couple of years, it, it kind of finally, the, the, the motor slowed down. But it took that long but to, to just die down. And I mean, listening to music is not really as heavy as some of the things we've done. <laughs> We've done a, created a lot stronger karma than that. And some of it takes a decade, or even longer, you know, before it dies down. But the one thing one can do is one can, one can if one is, if you use insight, wisdom, and use the teachings of the Buddha, and you really get to this, this quality of intention which we could say is the central factor of the mind, of the conditioning of the mind, is the intention. You can, you can actually do something about that. So one can listen with a patient mind, if it, a patient intention, if you like. And <coughs> this, the quality of intention, uplifts... The mind, so you get something that cheers and gladdens and arouses the mind, even when you're dealing with difficulties. And this is where a lot of deliberate, skillful activity in life pays off in the practice of insight. Because you've learnt that when an unpleasant word comes to you, or an unpleasant action comes to you, or somebody asks you in an unpleasant way, you've learnt, you've decided that you'll be patient, you'll be forgiving, you'll be kind so that you get the unpleasant feeling and yet the intention, the reaction, or the what, what comes out of you is not conditioned by that unpleasantness. You're not frightened, you're not defensive, you're not you know, angry back. And as you meditate, then you develop this to a fine degree in a very highly focused way. Looking at the at the conditioning, knowing the mind, then gladdening and cheering and arousing the mind through this quality of, of intent, will, volition, the, the central factor of, the, of that which conditions the mind. 
we all know, well, if you consider it, how you can be in, in circumstances that are quite miserable, physically painful, dreary, and yet if you feel good about what you're doing, it's okay. You can be in physical pain or discomfort, but if you're, if you're doing something that you feel good about, where there's, where you feel, then you feel, you, feel, you feel fine, you're able to be with that. And similarly, when you're in, in, in relatively peaceful circumstances, but your intention just goes wrong, you get selfish or frightened or paranoid or bored, or, you know, then, then that becomes unpleasant. You can't bear, you can't bear neutrality, even. You can't bear silence, you can't bear activity, you can't bear the presence of others because something's happened to your intention. So for the practice of meditation and perhaps the highest kind of meritorious thing, the thing we develop in our life and what we develop in the meditation is to keep this, the intent, the will, the directive, always towards that which is skillful, towards what is kusala, skillful. And this brings around a kind of pleasure. It's not the pleasure, it's, it's obviously felt, but it's not the, just the reactive feeling. The, the, the mental aggregates, in fact, are all conjoined together. You can't have, you you can't have intention without a feeling. You know, so that right intention actually has got a pleasant feeling associated with it. So sometimes when we say, oh, you know, you shouldn't be attached to pleasure, then you can react in the wrong way. Because then you think, well, I, I, you know, I enjoy meditating, therefore I shouldn't do that. That's, I shouldn't be attached to that pleasure. Or I like, I like um, being in the company of the, the monks, so I shouldn't do that, you know, it's kind of, because it's pleasant. But there are, there are pleasant things that give rise to skillful intention and pleasant things that give rise to unskillful intention. When the skillful intent, in other words, when there's a skillful result, then that has, feels good. It feels pleasing. Like to loving kindness is a pleasant feeling. But it's not the excited craving feeling. It's not the feeling that leads to craving. It's the, the kind of feeling that leads towards, towards increasing Dhamma. So the, you know, one, one is looking for that kind of pleasantness in meditation and in, in the practice of Dhamma. Not the pleasantness, say, of just something to absorb into, but the pleasantness that's associated with liberation with freedom of the heart, with buoyancy, with ease, with, with uh, skillfulness, the kusala kamma. This is what cheers and gladdens and arouses the mind. Once we see that this quality of lightness of heart can, isn't affected by the circumstances, isn't affected by external circumstances and by people, and by whether we're healthy or, or loved or appreciated or not, then there's a kind of uh, a freedom of the mind that comes around, a realisation of the mind's own 
integrity, honor, and freedom. So when the mind is cheered and gladdened, it's also freed. It means we're no longer really caught up with circumstances. And this is, you can, this is what's referred to in the sutta on mindfulness of breathing, this particular experience and process. And of course, a mind that is free isn't, it's not going to have compulsive reactions in it. But it can only, it'll only be free when it has its own gladness, which is not absorbed into a feeling, but the gladness of the mind, of the mind itself, the mind's own quality of, of intention the central conditioning factor of the mind, to have pure intent, to be able to to do skillful things is the greatest joy. This is some this particular aspect of this pleasantness of practice is something you should enhance, make much of, because there's interpretation of feeling is one of, you know, if it feels pleasant, don't do it which is true of this, the attachment to Vedana, one can sometimes miss out on the, the beauty of doing skillful things, the pleasantness of skillfulness, the beauty of the holy life, the Kalyana Dhamma. Really like to, to make that intent, to look for the way in small things, to make to bring around well-being in the lives and minds of others in one's daily life. To not underestimate that. See, even seeing like a retreat of sitting in silence as being something that stabilizes, that calms, that gladdens, that confirms the faith of others. To do it like that, so that you know, one's got a uh, a grander perspective on it than just the particular immediate vipaka that's hammering into my, my heart. What about the karma? What about the creative act that is, what is doing by sitting still and sitting upright? Imagine if we didn't do this. You know, if we just kind of flopped around and said, well, you know, that's life, you don't like it, tough, you know, that's the way it is, that's the way human beings are. You know, shouldn't be attached to the particular perceptions and feelings. That's life. You've got to just let go of it all. You don't put any care into it. So one misses out this crucial stage of gladdening, freeing, cheering, and realizing the beauty of the mind, of the, of the mind on that conditioned plane. And it's only upon that point that really one can, one has the, the fruition, the kind of fullness, when the mind is so full, so independent, that it begins to abandon every kind of clinging, even to its, its own notion of itself, its own notion of being something, its own perceptual framework of 
this is my mind, I'm feeling good. That, that keeping referring things back to the sense of, of self and furtherance in the future and purpose and what should I do and what's the most important thing for me to do now and which is more meaningful all that can, can die can pass away into a, a sense of trust and abandonment of intention as a conditioning factor we learn to take our, our messages our, we learn to live in faith trusting what life brings to us and acting in that, responding in that way to it. The kind of equanimity and evenness, where one is not even seeking that one's life apparently bring around great results. Because when you, you consider it, you start to really review where does so much harmfulness come from you know I mean there's obviously greed and hatred where's, where's it all based on what's greed based why are people greedy you say well because they, they need something why do people need things why aren't we content with breathing in and out living the life that we have being grateful for one moment, recollecting that we can die any moment and being content with that. Why do we want more than we've got? Why do we always want more? Why do we want significance and enlightenment and happiness and understanding and knowledge and entertainment and fairness and justice and freedom? And Why do we want all these things? What's the basis of wanting? It's all this self-importance, isn't it? And yet when you look at it, one, what is this life, just on a self-level? <coughs> one, lifespan's not very long, human being, you're not exactly the rarest creature in the planet, there's six billion of us, one planet in a system of countless trillions of stars, going on for billions and billions of years what's so important about it all (laughs) the only importance is there's just this moment isn't there that's the only important thing is that we can be conscious at this moment and we can freely act with right intent in this moment that's the only thing that gives it any significance at all once you step outside of that, that dynamic of what we do, of our intention, it's all just so minute, so nothing. You, it's, it, there's nothing there. You try to see your life ob- any ob- objectively, taking away your, your inner spark, if you like, your, your dynamic, your intention. And it's just one body, one human body, one set of feelings my happiness is so important my feelings, my thoughts but at this moment 
There's one thing that's the only thing that actually is alive in the moment, is the only importance of it, is whether that there is the awakening, the mind that the intention of liberation, the thing from which all goodness springs. And in one person, like someone born in India 2,500 years ago, or tramping around the, the countryside of rural India, not writing books, just saying things about morality and so on, can have enormous influence upon the well-being of millions and millions of others, but without any self-importance, without feeling you've got to do it. And who's going to believe this? And is it going to work? That, even the Buddha himself, just serving the Dhamma and trusting it. Now that, that's what counts for all of us. We all have, we can all serve the Dhamma, we can all deal, we can all respond as best we can to our fear, to our wisdom, to our happiness, to our unhappiness, to our busyness, to our stillness, to our comings and goings. We, we can all do that. We all have different ones, but we can all do the same thing. We can all arrive at that right, the same point through this practice. But, you know, review it and see where the mind finds its one point through the practice of recollection and meditation.